morning, Woodland Hills. All right. Now, if uh, you're watching on podcast, I'll say this again. The, the scuzzier I look, the better the worship service was. <laughs> I, 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 uh, hey, you know, I just want to encourage us. I, I feel like we're, God's moving us to a, a new level of freedom that we, that we need. And uh, uh, I want you to feel free. Yeah, just to, there's something about, I, I learned this really early on in my Christian walk. I used to go with a friend to a black Pentecostal church on Sunday nights, and uh, a major part of the worship was dancing. And uh, there's a freedom in that. I mean, you know, there's no, like, just claps all spiritual criteria you have about how that's, you know, more spiritual, whatever. It's not that. It's just that the, the more you enforce what your heart feels with your body, uh, the more congruity it creates, and the deeper it goes. And that's why the Bible really recommends a very holistic body uh, worship uh, with your hands, with your feet, with your mouth, and and we in Western culture tend to reduce it down to just your voice, and even that we're timid about. But it's time to get free. It's time to get free. All right. So, and you burn calories. So I, I uh, just have been, really been enjoying uh, being up here and just dancing. And I want you to every service, whether it's lively or mellow, we we vary a lot on that, and that's good. Uh, but I want you to feel free, if, you, if it's in your spirit, to come up here and just worship God. And some folks have asked about banners and stuff, and we're cool with that. Uh, you know, as long as you keep it on the side so you're not obstructing people or hitting people in the head and, you know, stuff like that. But uh, really, everything, we just want to be free. Amen. All right. Uh, we are going to take um, a little, uh, we're going to get back in the book of Colossians. I missed the book of Colossians. You missed the book of Colossians? I, I miss it. We got to get back to it. So uh, we're going to go into the book of Colossians a little bit. And then in a couple of weeks, maybe two weeks, we'll start a Christmas series uh, that we're going to be uh, kind of carving out of this collection of essays by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Who likes Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Got some Bonhoeffer fans? See, this is such a cool church. That's a way higher percentage than most places. That Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his stuff is great. Some of it's kind of hard to understand. Ethics, what a weird book. But uh, profound stuff. So uh, he has a collection of essays in this uh, book called A God in a Manger. And we're going to uh, take some of the teachings out of that and... Uh, do a little Christmas series out of that. Amen. But now, we're going to have at least two weeks, maybe three, going back to the book of Colossians. I should warn you ahead of time that I uh, had one of those nights last night uh, where uh, my brain doesn't turn off. I just get like that once in a while. Uh, I get an idea and it won't go away. So I got to get up and then I start writing and it goes on for the rest of the night. So I'm working on very little sleep here. And the thing is, is that the less sleep I get, the hyper I get, the more hyper I get. And uh, also, the less sleep I get, the less I, I good I am at censoring myself. Which, which is, is really challenging because this message is on sex. And so this could get really bad. You have no idea how much I censor on a normal sermon. This one. <laughs> All right, so be praying for me. Well, we're going to title this message Immoral Tohu Wabohu. Immoral Tohu Wabohu. And no, we're not going to be trying to teach people how to speak in tongues in this message. Uh, one of the cool things, one of the many advantages of uh, coming to Woodland Hills is you learn Greek and Hebrew. And see, this is a Hebrew expression, uh, the meaning of which we'll get to a little bit later on. Tohu wabohu. Everyone say it. Tohu wabohu. You can impress all your friends. When something happens, just say, oh, that's just tohu wabohu. That's totally tohu wabohu. Uh, it's out of the park, tohu wabohu. Um, okay, so we're going to start with the first verse that we left off with seven weeks ago. And we'll build from there. Paul in verse 4, he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. 
And what we looked at in the first four verses of Colossians 3, this magnificent uh, portion of Scripture, is that Paul is unpacking, really, uh, everything about our identity in Christ in those four verses. And we saw how our life is entangled with Christ, like a quantum particle. Uh, that what happens to him happens to us. And, uh, and then the, the sin that happened to us happens to him. And so when he goes down in the grave, we go down in the grave. And when he comes out of the grave, we have come up out of the grave. And when he is seated in heaven, we are seated with him in heaven, far above all principalities and powers. And this ain't poetry he's talking about. This is metaphysics. This really does happen. And in principle, it happens to every human being, but you have to accept it for it to apply to you. But when you accept it, well then, in a very real sense, your identity is wrapped up in his identity. So Christ is your life. You are, you are if you're surrendered to Jesus and animated, version of Jesus on earth. His, his, his life is your life. And so when he appears in glory at the end, when God wraps up this whole probational epic, you will appear with him in glory because his shininess now is your shininess. You participate in the, the, the radiance of uh, what it is to be in the image of God when everything that obstructs that image now is burned away. Right now we live in this fallen world uh, that's oppressed by the principalities and powers. We live in what I've sometimes called the fog, the deceptive fog of war, because this plot of land has become the, the, the battlefield of this cosmic war. We're kind of caught in the middle of that. Um, and so there's this fog of deception that conditions our thinking, and, and uh, there's the old self that we still carry with us. And that, too, to whatever degree we allow it, that conceals our true nature, our identity in Christ, our entanglement with Christ. It's covered up. We don't look the way we actually are. The whole business of discipleship, all of it, comes down to this. It's a matter of depolluting your brain and your heart from that deceptive fog of war. It's a matter of, of, in Christian discipleship, kingdom discipleship, we're not trying to become a better version of what we are. We're simply trying to get rid of everything that we aren't. Because who we really are is wrapped up in Christ. We keep on thinking like we're not, and that's because of this, this deceptive fog of war. So it's about stripping away everything that's inconsistent with the character of God to let the glory shine now as much as possible. And that's how we're salt and light to the world, putting on display what is uh, true, uh, what Christ has done for us, what Christ has done for all, if they will allow it. So that leads us up to the section that we're going to be dealing with here. Uh, Paul said in verse 3 that the, uh, the beginning of our transformation is with our mind. Keep your eyes focused on, on things above, he says, not on things of this earth. It's just his way of saying, trans, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, 2. I have your mind always on things that are true, things that are, are lovely, things that are blessed, Philippians 4, 8. Set your mind on things above. We have to be able to see our true identity if we're ever going to be able to live our true identity. And so I encourage folks to make it a regular practice in prayer to preview life in your head. This is what faith is about, seeing yourself in particular situations, especially the trying situations, and seeing yourself respond uh, according to your true nature in, instead of according to that old, uh, nasty, short-tempered nature that you used to have. And so instead of getting hot and bothered and all upset and whatever, you see yourself, envision yourself manifesting the character of Christ in those situations. And go over it again and again and again. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind over and over. That's what faith is about, right? Faith is a vision. Concrete vision, hypostasis, Hebrews 11.1, 1, a vision of things that you don't yet see. And as we envision them, well, then that empowers us to step into them and actually begin to live them. It should be a daily practice for every serious kingdom person. Um, and then now what we're going to see Paul does is this. Get it in your mind, be transformed by your mind, but don't stop there. Then you got to step into it. 
And that, we go from the mind to our behavior. And so we pick it up here in verse 5. When Paul says, because of who you are, don't just think the way you really are, but rather also live the way you truly are, which entails you put off, put to death. Therefore, therefore, referring back to everything that's been true about you, he says it's been true about you, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but no longer. You are a kingdom person. So I just thought it'd be great to kick off the holiday season by talking about God's wrath against sexual immorality. Hallelujah. What do you say? Tis the season to fear God's wrath and put to death immorality. There, how do you like that? Uh, we'll get to the Christmas season here pretty soon, but, but this is about... This is about uh, some serious stuff here. Um, you know, evangelical churches are, are typically known. Their reputation is that they kind of be, they're sort of obsessed with sexual sins. They talk about those all the time. They don't talk much about uh, the responsibility to care for the poor, feed the hungry, and things like that, social justice issues. Um, I don't think that Woodland Hills would ever be accused of that. I, we're sometimes accused, I'm sometimes at least accused of doing the opposite. Uh, folks... Sometimes say that I focus too much on issues of, of social justice and, and feeding the poor and, and, and housing the homeless. And I don't, uh, I minimize the, the gravity of sexual immorality. For that reason, some people call me liberal. It's a favorite label. If they don't like you, they call you liberal. Oh, you're liberal. Because liberal people care about the poor. <laughs> if that's the case, I'll, I'll, I'll own the tag. But see, the, the deal is, I, we really don't minimize sexual immorality. Not at all. It, we deal with it whenever we come to it in the text. It's preach the scripture. It's just that scripture isn't nearly as obsessed with sex as a lot of American churches are. That's what's wrong here. And, and so when you reflect, reflect biblical priorities, which the Bible is very concerned, preoccupied with the call of God's people to feed the poor and house the homeless, when you reflect that priority, then to folks who are obsessed with sex, it looks to them like you're minimizing sex. But we're not. In fact, the truth is that this, this is the most biblically balanced and, 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 and uh, 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 rightly prioritized uh, truth-speaking church on the planet. How do you like that? <laughs> and the most modest one, too. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. Like anyone would take me seriously on that. But today we're going to talk about sexual immorality. And then next week we're going to talk about God's wrath because there's a whole lot of screwed up thinking about God's wrath. So you want to come to this next week. Sexual immorality. So let's take a look, a closer look. Hey, first let me pray and then we'll take a closer look at what Paul says. So Abba Father, I pray God as this message is now going forth that you empower it to build the kingdom in our life and you empower it to help us God in a culture that is so screwed up and gets, it's getting increasingly screwed up about the, the rights use of sexuality. God help us to be a people who put on display the, the values of the kingdom and the beauty of the kingdom and who honor you uh, in every way, including with our sexual lives. Uh, God, build your kingdom through this message. Infuse it with your power in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 Okay, so here's what Paul says. Put to death sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. What's... What, what's uh, not in place there? You ever look at those little kids' books when they say, you know, some, one of these is different. <laughs> one of these is different. Well, what, what's different here is greed. The whole list is, is about sexual issues, but then there's, he, he caps it all off with greed. What's that doing there? 
It looks out of place. From our perspective, it might look a little bit out of place. But actually, if you put it in its original context, it's not out of place at all. Because to the, in the ancient worldview, especially among ancient Jews, sexual immorality was understood to be a form of greed. Now, greed, you could define as this. It's an impulse to go beyond proper boundaries to satisfy a craving for more. Our fallen natures, we crave more and more and more. And that's what greed is. And we can be greedy about wealth and possessions. Uh, that's how it's usually applied. And that is when we, we go beyond the proper boundaries of what we need in a world where there are people who have less than they need. That's being greedy. We can be greedy with food when we eat more than we need in a world where there are people who have far less than they need. It's being greedy with food. And we can be greedy with sex by going beyond the bounds of what we need and the bounds of what God has established. And that's what I want to focus on in this message being greedy with sex. See, we live in a world that's under the deception of Satan and the powers, as I said. Uh, This is the fog of deception, the fog of war. Because of that deception, uh, we are conditioned to think that God's the boundaries that God puts around sex, where it's to be reserved for marriage, those boundaries can strike us as arbitrary and even stupid. Because of the deception of, of the fog of war and because of the uh, inclination of our heart towards greed, the boundaries that God has established can, can strike us as, as uh, uh, just uh, arbitrary and, and oppressive and, and restrictive. It, because of the fog of deception, we sometimes get an image of God that he's just a killjoy. He just doesn't like to have fun. doesn't want us to have any fun. Gal. Uh, and so he just says, because I said so, here's the rules. And if, because they strike us as arbitrary... Uh, it makes it harder for us to live by them. We don't see, in this fog of deception, we don't easily see um, the, the, the uh, need and the wisdom that's involved in these uh, boundaries that God has established. It's opaque to us. It, they strike us as rules for rules' sake. And that makes it harder for us to live according to them. And what I want to do in this message is to um, try to help us to see the wisdom and the need for these boundaries. And that will help us motivate to live by them. Now, we shouldn't need extra reasons to live by them. God said it, and that should be enough. But it really helps if we see the necessity and the wisdom of God's boundaries for sexual activity and and for other things. The truth is, folks, that our well-being, in fact, the well-being of everything, everything that God's created, it all depends on boundaries. All of our physical and emotional and spiritual health is a matter of us honoring boundaries. Most diseases are the result of of things not staying in the proper boundaries. Disease happens when things in our body don't maintain the boundaries and the balances that they're supposed to have to hold our bodies together. Tumors, for example, happen when there are cells that don't honor the boundaries and they grow in places where they're not supposed to grow and they grow in ways they're not supposed to grow. The body is diseased. Trevor and I had to look through a bunch of pages on, uh, uh, on the internet to find this picture because all the other ones were too gross. Some of the pictures of these tumors were mind-boggling. That's the, that is the, 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 the most sanitized version we could find. But it, it, it gets the message across. Things grow where they're not supposed to grow and in ways they're not supposed to grow. Truth is that everything in creation hangs upon very precise boundaries. I'm gonna, I'm gonna geek out here just for a minute, and so hang with me. For a few, for a minute or two, it might not even seem like I'm talking about sex, but I am. 
So just hang with me. Put on your geek hats and follow. Because this is fascinating stuff. Everything hangs on boundaries. There's a, in science today, there's a lot of buzz going on about the way everything from atoms to humans to society to the earth to the solar system to galaxies to the universe as a whole, everything hangs on, on very precise balances and, and, and uh, very precise boundaries. Some of these are called uh, cosmic constants. I'll give you two of them. Put on your geek cats. Follow me here. Here's, here's one. If the ratio of the gravitational force constant to the electromagnetic force constant differed from its value by any more than one part in 10 to the 40th power, that's one part in 10,000 trillion, 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 no carbon-based life form could possibly be formed anywhere. That's a, the, the slightest difference in those balances, in, in those two forces, if that was upset by a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percentage point, well, life couldn't form anywhere in the universe. Here's another one. If the space energy density constant, which is the ratio of the expanding universe to the ratio of its density, if it differed in one part to to 10 to the 120th power, stars and planets of the sort that could potentially sustain life could not form. That's one part in 10,000 trillion, trillion, trillions times three. That's a 10 with 120 zeros after it. That... That part of a fraction, of a fraction of a fraction, if, if, uh, if, the, if these forces weren't balanced that delicately, we, you couldn't form planets that were solid enough to sustain uh, carbon-based life forms. It's fascinating stuff. Don't you think? I think it's fascinating. It's incredible. I mean, that's how finely tuned this thing has to be. Uh, they're, they're, these are called cosmic constants. Right now, we know of 38 of them. There may be more. We're, we're just kind of discovering these. Had any one of these 38 cosmic constants been a fraction of a fraction or a fraction of a percentage point different, the universe could not have sustained life anywhere. This is sometimes known as the anthropic principle because it, it, it looks like the universe was uniquely designed to produce beings like human beings, which is a pretty strong argument for the existence of an intelligent creator, if you ask me. Uh, this thing is, is, is very precisely tuned. And it's not like... So far as we can tell anything about this universe, it's not like we've got an infinity number of chances at this. If we had an infinity number of chances, well, then it wouldn't be surprising that one of them happened to get it right. And we, you know, we're the ones who got it right. That's why we can be sitting around here noticing that fact. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here noticing that fact. But see, we don't have an infinity of chances. If you go, if there's any credibility to the Big Bang Theory, we got one shot at this thing. One blow up, and it's going in one direction. In fact, it's speeding up going in that direction, and then it will dissipate. All energy will run out. And turn into nothingness. So he's one shot at this thing, and we happen to get it exactly right. Tell me that's by chance. <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, here's the thing. That's not even the point I want to make. What I'm trying to make this morning is, is that everything is held together by this very delicate balancing of powers and, and by the keeping of these very precise boundaries. And you were seeing this in a lot of domains of science today. In quantum physics, in chaos theory, complexity theory, dynamics theory, non-equilibrium thermodynamics, uh, we're seeing in a multitude of different ways. Everything from, from, from uh, electrons to subatomic particles to, to human beings to the cosmos, everything hangs on this delicate balance of order and chaos and structure and spontaneity and determinism and indeterminism. Everything exists because there's freedom, but there's freedom within boundaries. And when we, anything starts overstepping those boundaries... Things start to decay. They start to fall apart. Okay, that's the end of my little geek moment, my little geek spaz attack. Now, the Bible says the exact same thing, but in a lot simpler way that ancient people could understand. Uh, but when you read the, the, the Genesis 1 account, in light of what you just learned about the necessity of boundaries in creation, it really takes on a, uh, a kind of an interesting nuance. 
Uh, so we read in Genesis 1-2, it says, The earth was formless and empty. And that, folks, is the phrase, tohu wabohu. Everyone say it. All right, tohu wabohu. Impress your friends with that. It's formless and empty or chaotic and vacant. Uh, it, it refers to this primordial chaos out of which the world was created. And there's a lot of debate about what exactly tohu abohu means in Genesis 1 and the theological significance and things like that. Uh, I talk about it in the book God at War, if you're interested in going deeper at, into this. But what we need to know this morning, and all we need to know this morning, is that in an ancient Near Eastern background, and that refers to all the neighbors of ancient Israelites, the Mesopotamians, the Canaanites, and, and all those folks, in that context, tohu abohu was a negative thing, a pejorative thing. Uh, we read about it, for example, in Jeremiah 4, Tohu Wabohu, and it refers to a desolate land after God's judgment. It's just waste. It's, it's not capable of sustaining any kind of life. It's a negative thing. Now, God created, in Genesis 1, we see that God creates order, this orderly world, out of that Tohu Wabohu by imposing boundaries. And so in verse 4, it says, God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Light over darkness, dark over weakness, like we were singing before. Uh, although we weren't singing about this. But uh, you see that there's a boundary made there, a distinction. In the Tohu Wabohu, there wasn't any distinction between light and darkness. Now there is. Imposing order on chaos. And then in verse 7, it says, God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above the vault. Ancients thought that the, the sky was solid, and so God's communicated in, in their worldview. And so they see that the sky holds up water. And, um, and so we have another boundary imposed on Tohu Abohu, separating the waters above from the waters below. And then in verse 9, it says, God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. There's another boundary imposed on chaos, a, a distinction. First, there's a distinction between light and darkness, then water above and water below, and then with the water below, a separation between the, the, the dry land and the sea. And it goes on and on from there. God creates this orderly world by imposing boundaries on this tohu wabohu. And humans, by the way, are put in charge of maintaining the order of this world and keeping at bay tohu wabohu. That's why you find in the Bible, most people don't notice this, but you'll find a theme, a motif running throughout the Old Testament in particular, where when humans sin, when we overstep our bounds, the environment suffers. There's an intrinsic connection between our well-being and the well-being of the earth, because we are God's landlords here on the earth. Now, on top of that, we need to know this, that all ancient Near Eastern people understood that the context in which this orderly creation takes place is a hostile context. There are all around us forces of destruction that want to tear down the boundaries upon which everything depends, and return the world back to tohu wabohu. All ancient people saw, all ancient Near Eastern people viewed the world this way. They conceived of these hostile forces as hostile waters or hostile uh, sea monsters like Leviathan and Rahab. To read about those in the Old Testament. And those are just ancient ways of thinking about principalities and powers or, or Satan. They had the awareness that the context in which this world takes place or in which this cosmos takes place, because they didn't make a distinction there, that the context is hostile. We, we exist in a hostile context. And again, I flushed this out in, in my book, God at War. And all of these ancient Near Eastern people groups, the Mesopotamians, the Canaanites, and the Hebrews, 
they would all attribute to their God the power and the responsibility of holding the forces of chaos at bay. So the uh, Mesopotamians would talk about Marduk uh, pushing back these hostile waters, and the Canaanites talked about the god Baal who would push back the waters. And the Hebrews would take their songs and put Yahweh in them. And so they would praise Yahweh for rebuking the hostile menacing waters or for slaying the hostile sea monsters and keeping them from uh, returning the world to Tohu Wabohu. Um, and so we read, for example, in Psalms 104, it says, But at your rebuke, referring to Yahweh, at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. And that's just weird to us because we don't think about waters being afraid of thunder. Run away, run away! No, we, we don't think about water that way. And they knew about natural water that you, you know, have your boats in and whatever, and they knew that that didn't have a personality. But they, they, they envisioned this cosmic force of destruction that wants to return the world to Tohu Abohu. They envisioned it as, as hostile waters. They kind of personified them or as hostile sea monsters. And God had to hold them at bay. Now, the final thing we need to know about the ancient worldview on this is that, is this, that if humans ever overstepped their boundaries, or if God, for any other reason, stopped holding back the forces of destruction, stopped his, his protective hand, then the forces of chaos would begin to tear down the structures upon which everything depends and would return the world to Tohu Abohu. That, I'll, well, I'll, next week I'll discuss how that is really what, what the concept of God's wrath is all about. Letting evil run its course, which is always self-destructive. We see this happening in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 with the flood story. Um, humans, who were the landlords of the earth, right? Humans had become irrevocably evil according to Genesis 6. Imagination was on our, or evil was on our imagination all the time. And then we have this very, very, very strange story about these fallen angels who materialized and uh, had sexual relations with women and they beget these hybrid offspring called Nephilim. Uh, these half-human beings, Nephilim, very odd. Uh, but these, these are the angels, I believe, that are referred to in Jude 6. When uh, Jude says, The angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness. And I don't want to get sidetracked talking about what that means to say they were kept in darkness. The point I want us to see is that these angels uh, didn't, they, they overstepped their bounds. They didn't stay in their proper dwelling. They came down to earth. They materialized. And whenever anything in creation oversteps the bounds, it's on the way to creating chaos. And so here in this flood narrative, we find human beings were overstepping their bounds, not living according to God's ways. And and, and these fallen angelic beings were overstepping their bounds. And for a while, God tried to, in his mercy, hold back the, the destructive consequences of their sinful behavior. But there came a point when God, with a grieving heart, because God heart, God's heart always grieves when he has to bring judgment. But God, with a grieving heart, saw he had no choice but to withdraw his hand of protect, protection. And the forces of chaos then tore down the structures of creation and the boundaries, and everything returned to Tohu Wabohu. In fact, if you read it carefully, uh, the, the Genesis narrative that describes the flood is the exact reverse of the Genesis, Genesis narrative that describes the creation. In the creation, he establishes boundaries, out of the chaos and protects the boundaries from the chaos. But in the flood, he withdraws his protection. And now we have the undoing of creation as it returns to the state of Tohu Abohu. So it says in Genesis 7 that on that day, 
all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. The boundary of the vaults was collapsed. The forces of destruction came and collapsed those boundaries, and now we have the undoing of creation. It doesn't mean, it does not mean, that every time there's a disaster, it's because God lifted his hand of protection. Uh, there are a multitude of variables that affect what comes to pass, so we can never connect the dots between any particular disaster and God's judgment. Don't ever do that. But it is to say that God's boundaries, and this is the point I want us to really grasp, God's boundaries are anything but arbitrary. They, they are put in place for the well-being of us and everything else. In fact, the boundaries are there for the well-being of everything from particles to people to society to planets to solar systems and galaxies and the universe as a whole. Everything hangs on honoring the boundaries. But see, we with our greed, our, this fallen impulse that we have, and for believers it's a residue of the old self because it's not who you truly are. But we have this habit of greed and it, it's, a, it's a lust for more. And so we have this impulse to overstep the boundaries and satisfy our cravings. And so instead of honoring the boundaries, we violate them. And as it concerns sex, it means that we have a fallen impulse to overstep the boundaries of marriage, to have sex with whoever we want, whenever we want, however we want. The thing is that the boundary for reserving sex for marriage is not arbitrary or prudish or restrictive or oppressive. It's wise and it's necessary and it's in place for our protection. Because the well-being of individuals and of society hangs on this. And when we violate it, we eventually are bringing tohu abohu on ourselves individually and on society as a whole. The thing that's got to concern us, folks, is that we are right now seeing a massive assault on these boundaries. God's boundaries regarding the proper use of sex. A massive assault. The last 20 years in particular with the, the internet, it's allowed the porn industry to just explode in incredible ways. Last 20 years, it's been mind-boggling. Here are, here are a few statistics. Every second, 30,000 people are viewing porn at any given second. There are 40 million Americans, 14 million Americans who are regular visitors to porn sites. One in three of those are women. Porn roughly makes $13 billion a year in America. That's a 2010 statistic. Worldwide, it's estimated that it makes $96 billion a year. That's more than Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, Netflix, and Earthlink combined. It's massive. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling massive. And see, because of its pervasiveness, porn is now uh, permeating the entire culture, especially the youth culture. In movies and commercials and posters and music, all around us, sex is being used to sell and sex is being used to entertain. You walk around the Mall of America and you're deluged with images of sex. Um, it's not just Victoria's Secret anymore, you know. And it's, it's everywhere. Go by Amber Convery and Fitch and, and walk in there. These are clothes that are directed to, the market is like 13 to 17 year olds. And, and the, the posters are, well, that would have been classified as porn not too long ago. And in the message of all of that in the, in the media, all of it, it's never about the beauty of sex in marriage. Never. It's, it's about how if you want to be fully alive, a full human being, well, then you got to throw off the shackles of these oppressive rules and, and, and have sex however you want, with whoever you want, whenever you want, as much as possible. You're not a full human being except to the degree that you're doing that. And so we're being brainwashed. Or at least there, there's an attempt to brainwash us to view God's boundaries is arbitrary, restrictive, and oppressive. 
And that is unleashing, folks. It's unleashing tohu wabohu. You know, sex is like the power of the atom. The, the power that holds an atom together is one, of the mo- is one of the strongest forces that we know of in the universe. And when that power is turned inward and kept within the boundary of an atom, it is what keeps everything solid. Thank God for the power of the atom, because if it wasn't for that, we would all evaporate instantly. It's what it, holds, it keeps everything solid. It's a wonderful power. But when that same power is turned outward, as what happens when we split an atom, that power now becomes one of the most destructive forces we know in the universe. It's what I call the principle of proportionality, uh, where the power of something to do good is also its power to do harm. The benefit and uh, the harm are, are proportionally balanced. And so the atom bomb, when it's turned outward, it becomes it's explosive. Um, it is the atom bomb. Well, sex is like that. Sex is one of the most powerful forces in, in human experience. And when it's turned inward, there's the power to, to keep, it's part of the glue that keeps two people together and it forms the solidity of the family and therefore the solidity of society. But when that same power, power of sexuality, when it's turned outward, that same power is, is completely destructive to individuals and to society. It is an atom bomb unleashed on families and society. It is tohu wabohu. And I believe we are beginning to see the tohu wabohu unleashed in society. We right now, a few little stats here. 41% of all births are born out of wedlock. 35% of children now live in one-parent homes. In America, 19 million, there are 19 million new sexually transmitted infections that occur each year. Half of them with people between the ages of 15 and 24. In fact, one in five people under the age of 30 in America have a sexually transmitted disease. Tohu wabohu. Severe clinical depression is twice as likely among porn users as among non-porn users. Tohu wabohu. It's the power of the atom bomb being unleashed on society. And there's mounting evidence that it's also having an effect on individuals. Uh, there's a new book out called Hooked. The new science on how casual sex is affecting our children. By Joe, I believe it's Joe Beckelhaney and uh, Frida uh, McKissick. This isn't a Christian book or religious book. It's just a science book. Uh, but it explores, uh, the, from a neurological perspective, the potential psychological consequences of, of casual sex. And it's eye-opening. I'll give you one piece of evidence here. And again, this is going to sound a little geeky, but it's important geeky, so put your geeky caps on and stay tuned. There are three neurochemicals that are, are, that get, that, that are involved in, in sexual activity. There's dopamine, uh, oxytocin, and vasopressin. Dopamine is the, what's sometimes called the reward chemical. It's the chemical that makes you feel really good, gives you a sense of, of well-being uh, and excitement. It, it, it's accompanied with thrilling activities, whether it's being on a roller coaster or accomplishing something really huge or in sexual activity. Dopamine gets released in both men and women. It, makes, it feels good. Sense of well-being. And then there's oxytocin, which is the female bonding chemical. When women are involved in sexual activity, it, 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 this gets released, and it forms a sense of, of, of union with another person. You bond to the person. It's a very natural thing. And for men, there's a chemical uh, that's vasopressin, which is the male bonding chemical, and it, it, it creates a sense of commitment and loyalty to the person during sexual activity. And see, in God's design, dopamine, oxytocin, and vasopressin would all be balanced, and they'd, they'd complement one another. The thrill of sex, dopamine, would reinforce the bonding to the person, and the bonding to the person would reinforce the thrill of sex. That's how it's supposed to work. 
But when people have multiple partners, everything gets screwed up. Because you bond, and then you rip apart, and you bond, and you rip apart, and you bond, and you rip apart, and you bond, and you rip apart. And what these uh, authors argue is that this eventually, and there's neurological proof of this, it eventually damages, if not destroys, the brain's capacity to secrete oxytocin and vasopressin. It's like the brain gives up, says it's not working, forget about it. And so people lose their capacity to bond with others, or to feel bonded, or their capacity to feel a commitment, a sense of loyalty to, to, to one another. And because they don't feel the sense of bonding and commitment, they, they, they assume that others don't feel it, and so they don't trust others. And so trust issues and commitment issues, especially in the population 30 and under, are massive, and they're going through the roof. People can't commit, and they, they don't trust. And uh, that is highly destructive uh, for the stability of the families. Tohu Wabohu unleashed on individuals. These authors put it like this. Their inability to bond after multiple liaisons is almost like tape that loses its stickiness after being applied and removed multiple times. It wasn't supposed to operate like this. It was supposed to operate once. Nothing could be more destructive to the stability of families and society than that. Tohu wabohu, at least on the individual. Not only that, but dopamine operate, when dopamine operates independent of oxytocin and vasopressin, independent of this feeling of bonding and loyalty, well then the thrill is no longer directed towards one person. In fact, the thrill gets disassociated from the bonding and the commitment, and so it becomes directed just towards the sex for the sake of sex. And so now you have having sex with the same person starts to lose its thrill. You become bored with one person, so you want to move on, which then increases, of course, the damage to our, the, the, the chemical release of, of uh, oxytocin and vasopressin. So now dopamine, that thrill, instead of working in favor of marriage, it works against marriage, pulls you in the opposite direction. Not only that, but when dopamine is no longer balanced by the bonding feeling and the commitment feeling, well, then dopamine is all you've got to go on. And when dopamine is all you've got to go on, some people get addicted to it. They need more sex for, for sex's sake. And so, not surprisingly, we're seeing the rate of sex addiction and porn addiction going through the roof. And like all addictive drugs, for many people at least, you need more and more of a radical thrill to feel the buzz. And so people end up requiring increasingly strange and kinky, bizarre, and cruel, even cruel acts to get that dopamine release. And so we have testimony after testimony of people who started over here with soft porn, and it got more and more and more jaded, and they end up two years later doing stuff they would never have dreamed of two years earlier. And the stuff that's going on now in the porn industry, I'm told, is just uh, to a person, the normal person who hasn't gone down that road would find it not just shocking but revolting. But when, you, when you're only getting a thrill for sex for sex's sake, and bonding and commitment is no longer part of it, well, that's, that's what happens. That's one of the reflections of tohu abohu being unleashed on individuals. Uh, there's other things we could talk about. There's, some scientists are arguing there's a connection between promiscuity and depression, and promiscuity and low self-esteem, and promiscuity and a bunch of other psychological phenomena like eating disorders and even phobias. And then there's also the ramifications on a physical level, like one out of five people having an STD. It's tohu abohu being unleashed on our culture. And it's the direct result of this massive assault on the boundaries that God has put in place for marriage. To, from a biblical perspective, 
this shouldn't at all surprise us because Scripture teaches us, doesn't it, that when two people come together, it creates a one-flesh relationship. That's not an, a cute metaphor. That's a reality. There's a one flesh, a new reality that's created. God wired that into the nature of creation. In fact, this, this, this uh, bonding and loyalty uh, uh, chemical release, uh, that is just the physical manifestation of the one flesh reality that God creates, which, which Scripture teaches us. Science is just confirming what the Bible's been telling us. And Paul tells us that that one flesh relationship is, is created whenever two people come together. Even if it's with a prostitute, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. And... Uh, and so when you have the one flesh relationship, but then you, Jesus says what, what God is doing together, let no one ever put apart. It was never supposed to ever be destroyed. So you have people coming together, creating a one flesh relationship, and then ripping it apart. And coming together and having a one flesh relationship and then ripping it apart. And like tape that loses its stickiness over time, we lose our ability to commit and to feel loyalty to, and it is destructive. Tohu wabohu unleashed on society. Uh, it's, it's just what the Bible tells us. So I'll say this, and then we'll have time for maybe one or two questions. Folks, we live in a world that, that right now, and this culture is, uh, well, it's inviting tohu wabohu in on itself. Uh, uh, in particular, in this issue of uh, sexual immorality. We are called to be a people who uh, manifest the kingdom, right? To be a kingdom person means that you are willing to live according to the priorities of the kingdom, which means we swim upstream in the culture. We don't go along with the flow of the culture. We resist the brainwashing of the culture. Uh, uh, we, we defy the system. We live in revolt, whatever the cost may be. Uh, we're called to be salt and light by contrasting with the world. Every aspect of the world that's out of sync with God's will, we're to, as much as possible, contrast with it to put on the beauty, put on display the beauty of God's kingdom. And, and so we're not called to be a people who participate in the destruction of the world, but we're called to be a people who offer folks an alternative to this tohu wabohu world that, that we're living in right now. And so in that light, I, I want to say two things and then open it for questions. First thing is this, this. If you're, a, if you're a Jesus person, you've surrendered your life to Jesus, I want to right now leverage any and all authority that you've given me to speak into your life to call on you to turn, to repent. That's what the word repent means, just turn. Um, and and, and uh, turn to God and ask for forgiveness, receive his forgiveness, and commit to now living in a different way. Um, if you have been very involved sexually, if you're involved uh, in sex outside of marriage, and that's been a a regular thing in your life, and especially if you're like addicted to it or addicted to porn, this is going to be real difficult. In fact, it's going to be difficult no matter what your situation is. It's hard to restrain our, our sexual, our, our sex drive. But you're going to need community. And so I would encourage you, if that's been your story, to, to if you don't have a community, to look at maybe the, the refuge where we have pure men's desire and, or pure desire, it's called. And, um, um, uh, have a support system around you. One out of three people who visit poor now are women. And so we're, we want to have a, a support group for women who have sexual issues. Um, and so if, if you are in that camp, uh, call this number, uh, if you would, 287-2065. And we're, we're, we, if we can get four or five folks who, will, uh, who have this need, we'll try to get a support group around that. Uh, turn and commit to walking in a different way. It's not prudish. It's not oppressive. It's not restrictive. It's not Victorian. It's health, it's well-being, it's, it's living according to God's way. And the second thing is that if you've been damaged by sexual activity outside of marriage, whether it's been done to you or you've done it, um, 
You know, maybe you have been on the losing end of one who has ripped apart that bonding. Maybe you've been abused sexually, or maybe you've just been promiscuous yourself, and you maybe don't even know the different ways that you've been damaged. There's a lot of guys I know who just don't feel that bonding. They don't feel that commitment. They just don't feel that union because they, there's been damage done. The tape has lost its stickiness. And the good news is that for the kingdom person, that's not the end of the story. Praise God. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. He's made all things new. And that's not just true at the beginning of our walk with God. That's always true of us. And so whenever we repent and turn to him, there's healing. We can be made new. You can be made new. You don't, you're not damaged for life. You can be made pure again, holy again. Uh, you're part of the radiant, spotless bride of Christ, holy and blameless. And so I, I encourage you then to call it to God to get healing and restoration. And, and to begin to live uh, the whole life that, that, that uh, God has always uh, planned for us. All right, wonderful. We've got time for a couple of questions. What's on the menu? If I have sex outside of marriage, am I outside of God's protection? If I have sex outside of marriage, am I outside of God's protection? Um, well, you know, I, 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 I would say this, that I, I, I think there are different levels of protection that, that you know, are, are operative. It's not like there's either yes or no. You are protected or you're not. Um, I think God is, is working to protect all of us in different ways from, I mean, this is what God's mercy is. It's God coming in and holding off the consequences, the destructive consequences of our sin, trying to give us time to turn. Uh, it's only when we reach the end of, when, when he sees that there's no alternative, that he withdraws his protection and lets evil run its course. And even that he does for redemptive purposes, usually, uh, hopefully, hoping that we'll, we'll, we'll learn it the hard way. So I can't, there's no yes and no here. There's levels of protection. Um, but I would say that every time that we step outside the bounds, uh, to that degree, uh, we've, we've uh, pushed God at bay. Sin is, in essence, pushing God at, at, at bay. And I'm not going to say that he isn't going to protect you from other things and whatnot, uh, but it's never a wise thing to do. Now, having said that, I want to immediately add this. Uh, because the situation is infinitely complex, and we know next to nothing about what goes on in the spiritual realm, it is never appropriate to think that the reason someone was in a car accident or got leukemia or brain cancer or even a cold was because they sinned. You, we can never connect the dots that way. We're not allowed to. That's what judgmentalism is all about, and it's foolish and damaging. There's a, a, a trillion variables that affect what comes to pass, going back to, going back to the beginning of, the, the, of time. Uh, everything that's said and done affects everything else that's said and done. So we can never connect the dots like that. Just know that it's never, it's never wise to step outside the bounds. But I, I can't say you know, what God's mercy is going to do or, or not going to do. But g- good question. Another one. If sex before marriage is not God's will, is he okay with masturbation? Here we go. All right. Then would. Um, here's the thing. I'll give my, my opinion. Uh, this isn't the official position of Woodland Hills. We don't have an official position. So, you know, take what, uh, uh, you, uh, if, if you, if it, wear, if it fits, wear it. If not, don't. And it's so hard to avoid puns when you're answering this question. So I'm going to, if I, even if I see one, I'm going to ignore it. Uh, okay. So here's the thing. You know, I, I would say, it, ideally, it'd be better if you don't, uh, if you can, uh, re- refrain from that. That, that, that. That'd be ideal, and strive for the ideal. Having said that, all the statistics suggest that about 98% of men uh, are going to masturbate, and uh, I think something like 75% of women. In the case of the guys, I think it's just that 2% are either lying or there's something else going on. 
And for all I know, maybe women need to slide more. I don't know. I don't know how that works. But, but uh, so, so I, I think it's always good to be realistic on this because what happens is, you know, we, we're not going to talk about it because the ideal is this. Well, then you just leave kids on their own, and that just uh, uh, is, is never healthy. Uh, the, the thing that I think is, is um, uh, the most damaging part of this is that it, it has to do with what's going on in your head when the activity is going on. And so I encourage, here's what I encourage the kids I have influence on, including my own kids, is that, that he, there's the ideal, uh, but if you're going to, and you probably are, uh, then uh, from the beginning, uh, imagine being married, not to any particular person, but just imagine being married, because sex is designed for marriage, and frame it in that context. And that may be challenging at times, but uh, you know what? That challenge doesn't end when you get married. <laughs> so start fighting, learning how to fight that battle now. And, uh, and I, I suggest giving this to kids at a very young age so that from the start they're going in this direction. Uh, what happens is very frequently they're introduced to masturbation when they're introduced to pornography, and so they always associate the two together. And you, most people do just associate the, the one with the other. never occurs to them that there might be a, a, a healthier way to masturbate. And, um, and, and so I'd encourage uh, folks to, to think monogamously and see this as a rehearsal for marriage. In fact, it can be, uh, some find it to be an advantage uh, in dating, because if you're not walking around with a hormone ready to pop, uh, then uh, you're, you have more some self-control on dates. And when you're 20, uh, you can use all the help you can get. So, um, yeah, so, so I, I, that would be my, my advice, uh, to say, oh, here's the ideal, but here's the real. Let's make the best with what we've, we've got to work with. All right, good. Uh, i got time for one more. Uh, if I was sexually abused as a child, am I tainted in God's sight in some way? No, 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 no. A thousand times, million times. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. No, that was not your fault. Uh, and the enemy might... I mean, one, one of the residues that sometimes happens with folks who are sexually abused is they feel tainted. Um, and they feel... I mean, you feel used. You feel dirty like it was your fault. And they internalize that. And what you need to know is that that was not your fault. And... Um, Certainly God does not hold that against you. His heart breaks for you. And you need to imagine his heart breaking for you. And um, you, are, uh, you are in his sight, lovely, pure, spotless, and holy. You need to see him say that to you. Imagine him. Spend time just imagining Jesus coming to you and saying the words that are true about you. Even if they don't feel right, because you've got uh, damage going on, speaking to you, saying, oh, you're tainted and dirty. So if anyone says you're holy, blameless, spotless, lovely, radiant, it, it clashes with, with your self-think. But that just shows that, that you're damaged. So give God's word more authority than your damaged mind. And, 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 and uh, just ask the Holy Spirit to help you imagine Jesus saying to you, look into his eyes as he says it, and hear him say your name as he says it. You are holy and pure and spotless. His radiant bride. He loves you with an everlasting love, a love that can never be increased on. You ravish his heart. Uh, he has to turn away, uh, it says in Solomon, because of, of uh, his heart is so ravished for you. He's out, he's out of control and love for you. And, uh, and, and just let him love you on your way to a, uh, a sense of, of whole pureness and purity. Amen. Amen. No, no, no. You are not tainted. How does sex in a homosexual relationship fit with your idea of tohu wabohu? Whoa, I got two or three minutes, and this is what you give me? Okay, look at it. It's, it's not, as I said several weeks ago, it's not God's ideal. Um, here's the balance of everything I said today, and I, I, I contemplate how I should maybe bring this out. But you've got God's ideal, you've got the boundaries that are there. And we need to know those ideals and adhere to those ideals as much as possible. 
the balance of that is that we find throughout the Bible, God bends ideals to accommodate our non-ideal situation. Do the best with what you've got. And so he does this with, we find it with polygamy in the Old Testament and concubines. We find it with uh, divorce and remarriage in the New Testament. Um, and so that's, that's the balance of this. So how does it fit with, how does a homosexual relationship fit with tohu bohu? It fits the way every other uh, kind of sexual relationship outside of God's marriage fits. Uh, it's not ideal. It will, uh, it, it, to that degree, brings about damage and destruction. Um, uh, and so I would call on folks for whom that is your struggle. It's no different. There's no, nothing distinct about homosexual uh, desires as opposed to heterosexual uh, uh, as it concerns uh, the relationship with God's ideal. Uh, you strive for the best you can. And so be in the context of community, uh, be working out what is, what is God's ideal for the real of where I'm at right now? And uh, how can I be empowered to strive to manifest more of God's ideal uh, in this broken world that we have? Uh, we have just gotten accustomed to making that a sui generis sort of problem, a, a, a problem that stands alone, it's distinct, it's, and we put it in a separate category. But really, sexuality is sexuality. And there's different forms of of, of uh, brokenness, but it's all sexual brokenness. I was speaking with a gay person last night uh, on stage here, and we were talking about this, and I said, look, at it's no different than, uh, you know, most men, I, and, and I don't know how this, I'm, I've never been a woman, and so I, I, I can't, you know, I don't know. You probably knew that, didn't you? But uh, most men in this fallen world, uh, we're, all, we're all screwed up in different ways. Uh, you know, most men find that being monogamous doesn't come natural. <laughs> you you got to struggle with it. Now, if, if God's creation was ideal, I don't think that would ever be a struggle. But we're born chemically screwed up. And so we've got this impulse to go beyond the bounds. Um, and the point is simply this, that that's no different than your issue. We, we've all got to struggle with the issues. And uh, um, uh, there's no separate category that we should be putting certain groups in. My, my brokenness isn't as bad as your brokenness. No, it's all broken. Okay, uh, I've got time for one more, one more. What, does, what about masturbation? I think we've got one minute. You're going to... James Dobson says this is okay in some situations. Well, if James Dobson says it's okay, who am I to argue? <laughs> He's the authority here. Okay, I, look, I'll, I'll say one thing about this. Uh, this is the M word that I warned you about. Because this, is a, this, is, this is a big issue because um, uh, the thing is, is we postpone marriage longer than any other culture in history. And because of the trust issues and the commitment issues that are going through the ceiling, we're postponing it longer and longer and longer. Uh, and so the issue is, what do you do with your sexuality in the interval? Um, and by the way, this is my opinion, not the opinion of Wilderness Church. We don't have an official stance on this, so this isn't the church's teaching. What's your doctrine of masturbation? <laughs> but look at, look at, I'll just say this. One of the things that... Usually, that is always associated with like pornography and, and envisioning harems in your mind or all sorts of illicit things and, and, and all of that. And because the, we never do any teaching on this, kids are kind of left to struggle with this on themselves. We say, don't masturbate. But 98% of the guys are, are going to. And studies show that 76% of the women will. Um, and uh, that, that means 2% of the guys are lying or they're just very uh, challenged. I don't know, but... <laughs> And I don't know what the issues is with women. I've never been a woman. I don't know. But but look at, uh, you know, like I just said, we we maybe the ideal would be to, to say never, and I would say strive for the ideal. But you also have to deal with the real, and and the real, and so the thing is this: because we don't talk about it, well, then that's when they first they usually discover that 
when they discover pornography or whatever. And since they're giving no guidance on that because we're too holy to touch that, well, then they just go off in their little fantasy lands. And so they, they very early on lock in sexual experience and pleasure with all sorts of kinky multiple stuff. Uh, what if we were to say, look, if, 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 if that needs to happen, then try to envision marriage. Not with a particular person, but just the concept of marriage. And see that as a rehearsal for marriage. Uh, and that may be hard to do, but you might as well get used to that struggle because you're going to have that struggle even after you get married. I'm sorry. I'm just being honest here. Uh, the mind is hard to, to control. So uh, start training that and, and try to envision uh, a marriage context. Um, some folks find that that actually is, maybe it's not ideal, but it's a realistic way of handling, especially when you're 20 years old and you're walking hormone ready to pop at any minute. Um, it's, it's one way to have greater control, like when you're on dates and stuff like that. You're not walking around as a professional hormone ready to pop. you got a little more self-control. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Okay, so what level of sexual intimacy is allowed outside of marriage? Kissing, petting, etc.? Is there a level inside marriage that God does not allow? Watch your baba, baba, bay. In one minute, here we go. Okay, keep the question up there, okay, so I can keep looking at it. Okay, I'll, I'll look at um, about the first question. What I'd say is this: um, Paul says, "Put to death immorality." Right? Uh, another place he says, "Flee from sexual immorality." And so, I would encourage you to think about this not as how close to the edge can we get before we cross over, rather. Uh, err on the side of safety. I mean, you know, go, get far away from it. Um, and, um, and see God's leading on that. I would, I, I'll just give you my, my opinion on this, that I, I think, uh, in, as a relationship progresses far down the road, uh, kissing is appropriate. I don't think anything else is. Uh, there's my, my, but, uh, I, I wouldn't be saying, you know, is it, how about here? How about here? I have been shocked to find out from some students, Christian students, the things that go on that they don't call sex. It's like, they tell me stuff that... I don't know how so... <laughs> well, it's odd to say that, that you know, it, it never occurred to, me, occurred to me as a married man to suggest that. It's like, you know what? Holy man. I, you know, and baby, I, I, a good rule of thumb is this. If, uh, the, the thing about marriage, the privilege of the marriage covenant is you get to do things... Uh, that in, in, in the context and the privacy of the marriage that, that aren't, it wouldn't be appropriate publicly. That's unique. That's a unique privilege of marriage. And so I would say, basically speaking, that anything that you wouldn't do, you should never keep things secret. Anything that you couldn't say out loud and, t- you know, and, and, and do in public, then don't do that until you're married. And then, then you get to enjoy the privilege of that privacy, which goes to the second thing. Is there a level inside marriage that God does not allow? Um, I, I, I don't know of any. Um, I, I would say that, you know, the, the bed is undefiled, it says in Hebrews, and some folks mean that, take that to mean that you, that you should never do anything dirty in it or naughty or whatever. But see, I, I think it means it's undefilable. I mean, that means that, that you, you now have, the, you're in the covenant of marriage where you get to do things that outside of the covenant would defile it. Um, if, you know, and there's biblical principles to bring this, like both people should be consenting, um, and, um, uh, it, you know, it shouldn't be harmful to anybody and, and whatever. But having said that, there, I think, in the same way that be prior to marriage, you err on the side of caution. In marriage, I, I think that's part of the, the privilege of the marriage covenant is you get to keep it exciting and you get to keep it interesting. And I think some people need to start spicing it up a little bit. And, okay, you know, try, you've been doing that 30 years. Why don't you try something new? 
you know, uh, <laughs> take off the Batman outfit, put on the Superman outfit, something new. <laughs> something. Mix it up a little bit. Really. I think one of the reasons why you feel, for some people, one of the reasons that why they, people sometimes look outside of marriage or they get attracted to that is because we, we, we fail to keep it interesting inside of marriage. Um, there's a creativity and an adventures and an adventure. Keep that dopamine flowing, you know. And so I encourage you there to be risk takers, you know, exploring stuff and have fun. You know, knock, knock, knock yourself out, not literally, but okay. <laughs> All right, uh, get online and you find out some more interesting questions that we uh, dealt with. Uh, it's uh, it's a fun issue. Uh, at some point, we're thinking about doing a whole series on this because this is there's so much screwed upness around this that we need to explore it uh, more thoroughly. I'm going to call the prayer teams to come up here. And if you are here with any need whatsoever that you could use prayer for, please come up and take advantage of this. Um, it doesn't have to be just about this issue. It could be about any issue that you have. But if you this morning turned and made a commitment, I would encourage you to pray with somebody really quick about that and tell someone about it because there's something about prayer that seals it. All right? Uh, or if you need healing this morning, start the process of healing uh, by praying with these folks or for any other need that you might have. So, Abba Father, thank you for the gift of sex, and uh, God, for the gift of marriage. And we pray, Lord God, that you give us the wisdom to see, the wisdom and the need for boundaries, and how you're not a, just a killjoy God. Uh, God, you put things in place for our protection and the protection of society, and help us to be a people, God, who swim upstream. There's such a strong, strong current in this culture uh, drawing people towards the, towards tohu abohu. But God, help us to be a people who in the power of the Holy Spirit swim upstream and are willing to defy the pressure of the culture and put on display the beauty, the magnificent beauty and sanctity of sex in marriage, but also who put on display the beauty of a celibate life outside of marriage because that is beautiful. And uh, in all things, to manifest the beauty of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, we pray. And all of God's people said... Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world.